I'm so tangled. Anyway, uh, if you have a Bible with you, please uh, take it out or turn it on and open it to Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 1 through 35. That is Luke 24, 1 through 35. Let's pray before we begin. God, I pray that you would be with us as we open your word, that the story of the resurrection would speak to us fresh, that we would be filled with the hope and joy that, that only the good news of the gospel brings. In Jesus' name, amen. Question, what is hope? It's a loaded word for us. When, when a situation can't be any worse, we call it hopeless, right? So if you don't have hope, it's like this essential ingredient for being able to get through life. President Obama, his whole successful first campaign, his picture, the word hope, that's it. That's all we need. We're like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> what do we mean by it? Hope, and, and, and feel free to write this down. Hope is something we expect in the future that makes dealing with present pain worth it. I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, a while ago, Every once in a while, our family will just have a Jones to go to the beach. Not Jones Beach, where I grew up, but California, a nice beach. And the problem is, of course, we all know here in Denver, we're, we're, we're pretty landlocked, and the only way to get there is a two-day drive. And so there was one, one, one year, we had a spring break, only five days off before we had to be back for church. And so we were like, man, what do we do? It seems like an awful lot of two-day driving to, to get there and be at the beach for one day. And, and so we were like, I know, let's do the drive in one day, right? 17 hours, one day, five kids in a car, what could go wrong? And, you know, you start out at four in the morning because that's what you do. And it, everything's fine for a while. You're good through Colorado, good through Utah. And then at some point in Nevada things start to wear on you. You start to get sore in the seat. You're kind of tired of confetching for the back seat. You know, you're in Nevada. That's another downside. Just the aggressive beigeness starts to weigh upon you. But you know what? At that moment, you've still got seven hours in the drive, and you're thinking, what? There's a beach at the end of this. There is something in the future that makes dealing with this present pain worth it. Now, let's just for pretensy's sake, say there was no California and only Nevada, right? It was Nevada from here on out. What do you do then? Do you keep going? No, dealing with that present pain is no longer worth it, you see? You know what they call that when there's an absence of hope? They call that despair. We have a despair epidemic in our society. Did you know that there are currently 20 million people addicted to substances right now? The sociologists term, uh, they have a term called death of despair. That is everyone who dies from an overdose or alcohol poisoning or commits suicide. Did you know that deaths of despair every year are almost double traffic deaths, handgun deaths, all gun deaths, and people killed by police? You combine them all, double them. That's deaths of despair. It is an epidemic. And, and the fact is, we need hope. We need something in our future 
that makes dealing with the pain of the present worth it. If you've got hope, you can deal. If your marriage has hit the rocks, well, if, if you have hope that you can go to counseling, tough it out, things will get better, you can deal with the present pain. Your life has fallen apart, every relationship's destroyed, job lost, you're facing poverty, you're pace, facing who knows what. As long as you see that this could get better, as long as you see there is hope, something in the future that makes dealing with present pain worth it, you can deal with it. And if you lose that, then you will encounter despair. Where can we find hope? A hope that doesn't fail us. Well, the, the, the situation of the people in our text today was one where they had lost all hope. Look with me at Luke 24, verse 1. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, we want to try and crawl inside the minds and bodies of these women right now and what they had gone through. A couple of days before, their hopes had been sky high. You see, they, they were part of the Jewish nation, and the Jewish nation had lived under foreign oppression and domination for 600 years. They were waiting for someone, someone they called the Messiah, a king who would deliver them and set them free. And this Jesus guy looked like he was him. God was clearly on his side. He was working miracles. He was amassing a following. He was declaring himself king. But instead of going to the throne of David, he went to the cross. The very people he was supposed to overthrow, the Romans, executed him as a seditionist. That happened on Friday. And these women had to, spend, had to have spent probably the worst Saturday in the history of the world. Probably hadn't slept, probably hadn't eaten, and now here they were carrying the embalming spices to do one last act of love and loyalty to this one who had been their hope, and now all hope was gone. Verse 2. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, this is ancient world, no street lights. It's early morning. A tomb in the ancient world, it would have been a, a, a low sort of tomb carved out of a rock wall with a disc-shaped stone rolled in front of it. It's low. So how close do you have to be before you see in the dark that there's no stone there? You have to be right up on it. And, and so it's a shock. And, and they go inside. Look, in verse 3, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you, hey, indeed, amen to that. <laughs> he, while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. A as an aside, I love the realism of their response, right? I I anywhere in the Bible someone encounters an angel, like what they do is they get down. And, you, you know, Luke, we know Luke wrote his gospel by interviewing people who, who were there. And I could just imagine this interview session. It's like, okay, so... so what were they like? You saw angels. Well, their, their clothes gleamed like lightning. What? 
What do you mean clean like lightning? They, I don't know. Well, what did they look like? Didn't get a good look at them. How? Face was on the ground, super scared. You know, but I do remember the gleaming, right? I love details like that. Now, the, the, the question we have to ask, and it's the question that we find the disciples asking in just a second here, with any, any hope, anything we expect in the future that makes dealing with present pain worth it, we have to ask, is it real? Look at verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11, that's the disciples, and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them, who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Okay, they're like, okay, you want us to hope in this when all our hopes are dashed, but that's not real. But Peter actually, we see, he, he, he finds it worth, like, I'll, I'll go check and see if what they say is true. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, Peter had just ruled out. If, if, if a body goes missing from a tomb, you don't automatically assume he's risen. You know what they assume? They assume what Peter was assuming, and he had just ruled out by seeing the linen. What does the linen prove? It proves that it was not grave robbers, which would be the number one explanation. Grave robbing was such a problem at this time, there was imperial law against it. It was common. Now, if you were a grave robber, you know what you wanted in a tomb? The linen. It was soaked in spices that, you, that were very valuable. You could sell it at market. Okay? So if you were a grave robber, you might take the body and the linen. You might take the linen, leave the body. The one thing you would not do if you're a grave robber is take the body and leave the linen right? you're not even at, at the market. Hey, corpse, three days dead. Very good. Who wants? Who's in? I'm listening to offers. Right? That's not happening. And so he, you notice he doesn't rejoice. He doesn't say he's risen, but he's at least asking the question, could this be real? Because hope needs to be real. It's possible to get your hopes up for something that doesn't materialize, that isn't real. I followed with somewhat morbid glee the news of the Fire Fest a couple of years ago. You guys all seen the documentaries? For those of you who don't know, it, I mean, it's spectacularly bad, but I couldn't take my eyes off it. It was, it was a bunch of like social media influencer guys that put on a, a festival on a tropical island called Fire Fest, and they did possibly the greatest media campaign ever, like spent millions on it, hired supermodels to, to look like they're having fun on an island, and, and they're like, it's gonna be gourmet food, luxury accommodations, Jay-Z will be there, Beyonce might come, you know, but all these artists are booked, and you know, you young millennials, just for the, for the meager price of 10 to $50,000, and you have to buy your own flight, can come down and have the experience of a lifetime. Right, and so everybody gets their hopes up. They're so pumped. They're all posting it. Hashtag Firefest. Right? They get there. There was no artists booked. None. There wasn't even a DJ. Their, their luxury accommodations were FEMA tents, like the, the PVC and, and nylon tents they get out for, for disaster relief. And the gourmet food was literally Wonder Bread with mayonnaise and a piece of lettuce. And it was wilted lettuce. 
So everyone got get their hopes up, and they're like, oh, I'm just living for Firefest. I'll sell it all to go to Firefest. And it wasn't a real hope. If our hope has something to do with the story of Jesus, with Jesus rising from the dead, if that's going to be the thing that we turn to for hope, the thing in our future that makes dealing with present pain worth it, we have to ask, is it real? Now, I am under no delusions. We, are all, we have all been raised in a highly skeptical culture. Our entire system of knowledge is based on it. So how would we know if an ancient person rose from the dead? I heard uh, Richard Dawkins, who's one of the atheist evangelists, say, if this happened today, there'd be news cameras there all over the place. And I'm like, would like to point out to him, this was 2,000 years ago. You're not going to get news cameras. Sorry, Rick. Okay. Uh, well, one thing historians really like is, you know, archaeological data, uh, studying oxygen isotopes in hair follicles, that sort of thing. Well, what sort of archaeological data would a man who rose from the dead leave behind? The answer is none. He was a poor man. He was a carpenter. He didn't build buildings to his own glory. He didn't lead armies. None of that. Okay. So what do we have? The other thing that historians like is eyewitness accounts, primary accounts, or a contemporary account, which means I wasn't there, but I talked to the people who were. And then third best is called a secondary account, meaning I wasn't alive at the time, but I worked from the eyewitnesses, okay? Now, for ancient events, they're a bit different than modern events. Um, the famous Battle of Thermopylae, you all saw the movie 300, that's Thermopylae, okay? Do you know how many eyewitness accounts there are of Thermopylae? Zero. There's one contemporary account. Just one. No one doubts that it happened. Um, the uh, Hannibal, famous General Hannibal, who marched through the Alps with elephants and all that, huge pivotal event in history. Do you know how many eyewitness accounts we have? Zero. Where there's one contemporary account. Alexander, the king of Macedonia, some people call the great. Do you know how many eyewitness accounts we have that he lived, that people saw him and he walked around? Zero. Do you know how many contemporary accounts we have that he lived and did all the things he did? Zero. We have four secondary accounts. The resurrection of Jesus, not just that Jesus lived, but the resurrection has six eyewitness sources and 13 secondary sources. In terms of a historical event, it is amazingly well attested, okay? Any other event, if there, was, if there was one eyewitness source, we say, yes, this happened beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's just our own resistance to this idea that someone could be raised from the dead. Now, there are other explanations, all right? Could they be mistaken? Could these people have seen something they didn't understand, right? These, these people didn't have iPhones, they hadn't read Carl Sagan or whatever. <laughs> right, they were pre-modern. They were pre-modern. But you know what they knew? Dead bodies. They knew that they did not come back to life. They were well aware of that. You even see the re response of the disciples. Like, no, that's nonsense. <laughs> it can't be true. He's not risen. Also, you have to take into account, if you had a revolutionary trying to overthrow a government, and he was crucified by that government, what happens to his following? They would dissipate, right? Might be a couple of hardcore people who tough it out. 
you know, like the Death Eaters who followed Voldemort after his fall, Bellatrix Lestrange, shout out. <laughs> that was too nerdy for you guys, I'm sorry. <laughs> but Jesus' following grew. It skyrocketed. It, it grew exponentially. Okay, so, well, maybe that happened because these guys who saw the resurrection, they weren't mistaken, but they're lying. They know he didn't rise, but they're going around lying to people. Okay. If they lied up a new religion, it's the worst lied up religion ever. Selling to ancient Jews that the Messiah was crucified was considered nonsense. In fact, the writers in the New Testament, this was something they had to overcome. That was their main resistance. The idea of a crucified Messiah was a non-starter. So it's a terrible lie. Second, they paid a really high price for it. All of the disciples except John who, who did go to exile, but all of those guys were crucified, beheaded, thrown off of buildings, uh, dragged across deserts to their death. So if it's a lie, they paid an awfully high price for that really dumb lie. Someone will kill for a lie. They will die for a lie, but they will not die for a lie that they themselves made up. And you have to ask, what was the gain? All these guys were sort of lower middle class, fishermen, farmers, that sort of thing. They could have had a comfortable life, relatively speaking, had a family. But why did they choose the poverty, privation, persecution, mockery that came with being a disciple of Christ proclaiming the resurrection. What would be the gain there? You say, okay, well, maybe the, 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 an explanation that covers the data is that he rose, but that's just impossible. So even if I have a terrible explanation that doesn't cover the data, it, it's better than an impossible explanation. People don't rise from the dead. Granted, good point. But the question is, how do you know that resurrection is impossible? That's one question. Two, if God were real, if there really was a God that made everything and has that kind of power, would resurrection then be possible? Yes, it'd be perfectly reasonable. So maybe the problem is that we don't have a God who could raise the dead in our worldview. And if you do, it makes perfect sense of everything we know about the resurrection. So Christ's resurrection is real. It's a real hope. But we have to ask, why is that a real hope? The so what? Why is that hope for anyone but Jesus? Good for him. It, it, our world needs hope. Say amen. <laughs> our world needs hope. Open the news. Stories of everyday cruelty. Living through a pandemic. And, and our hopes get up every few years, don't they? This president's coming in. This president's going out. And we're like, yes, we're going to make the world right. And it never happens. Our world desperately needs hope. There is great reason to believe that the resurrection of Christ is not just hope for him, but hope for the world. Look with me at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Now, this is, my, this is not supported by solid scholarship. I believe Jesus messes with them on purpose. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. 
About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. A good translation would be how blockheaded you are, slow, and how slow to believe all that what the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Beginning with Moses, that is the first book of the Bible, and all the prophets, that's the end of the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Christ's resurrection is not a weird accident. Jesus says, if you had understood the Old Testament properly, you would know this is the fulfillment of a plan of redemption. He is the center of that redemption, and it's pointed to with many signposts all throughout the Old Testament, from Moses all the way through the prophets. Now, how does Christ's resurrection, being part of God's plan, make us hopeful for the world? Well, there was a, a, a famous incident that happened in the Second World War. You see, the, the Allies, there was, it, was, it was at the point in the war where the Nazis controlled all of Europe. Right? It was this Nazi super state, and the, the Allies were planning an invasion of Italy, the softest point. But they, they wanted to take one of these islands off Italy to amass forces and all that and invade from there. And they were going to take the island of Sardinia. Right? The, the, the Germans were not expecting it, but something happened. There was a dead body of a British officer that was downed over the sea named William Martin, and the, the, the Spanish discovered this and shared it with the Nazis, and he was carrying on himself a coded message from one general to another, and the Germans cracked the code. And there was even like a little joke at the end, I look forward to eating sardines with you, and the Germans said, ah, English humor. So they're going to Sardinia. So the Germans foiled their plan by moving their... Uh, their, their reinforcements to Sardinia. Except that that was the plan. This is, this is something called Operation Mincemeat. They found a drifter who had died of tuberculosis. The English did. They, they invented an identity for him. They gave him opera tickets. They signed him up for several clubs. They put pictures with a family and all that stuff in it and planted the coded message they knew the Germans would decode. Why? Because they didn't want to invade Sardinia. They wanted to invade Sicily. They wanted the Germans to move their defenses to Sardinia, which is exactly what it was, and the plan worked flawlessly. Now, that's who feels more hopeful when you hear that story, right? That was the plan. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a mistake. That was the plan. What it means, if Jesus is the center of God's plan of redemption. If this was the plan for him to die and be resurrected, you know what that means? 
It means we are not living through a chaotic unfolding of events that mean nothing and end in disaster. We are living, amen, we are living through God's unfolding plan of redemption of which Jesus is the center. And guess what? There's more plan. Jesus is coming back to finish redemption. The Christian faith, some of you may have heard or understand it to be a side in a culture war. It isn't that. In fact, I would counsel everybody to take five steps back from the culture war. It is not a moral improvement plan. In fact, your participation and reception of the gospel and being in a relationship with God is in spite of our morals, not because of them. The Christian faith is God's own folding plan to heal his broken world, and the resurrection of Jesus is the very center of it. It means that God's plan is right on track, no matter how it looks to you and I. And so you might be asking, okay, so it's real. It's part of God's plan, but why is this hope for me? Because a lot of the time, the hopes that we look to, these things that we expect in the future, they exclude many people. I, I remember the story that is told by the great African-American intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois, that when he was uh, a, in rural Massachusetts as a school kid, he was the only black kid in his class, they were um, at school, they were, they were exchanging calling cards. This was back in the day, right? And they were, they were pretending like they were adults. They had fancy calling cards. They were having fun with it. Like, oh, here's my card. Call upon me, that sort of thing. And, and so they're all having fun with it. And he goes up, he, he described her, he said she was a tall newcomer. And he handed his card to her, and she refused his card. She refused it like with like a, a shocked glance. And he describes at that moment a veil descending around him, shutting him out from their world. He says this, it dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others, or like mayhap in heart and life and longing, but shut out from their world by a vast veil. For the words, worlds I longed for and all their dazzling opportunities were theirs, not mine. If we are going to look for hope, if we are going to point others towards a hope, it cannot be a hope that is behind a veil, that is for some and not others. I'm going to step on a couple of toes here. The American dream cannot be your hope. Because even if you're an American, that hope is often shut off from you. A rewarding career hey, I'm just going to, my hope in life is that I'm just going to keep working and working. I'm going to leave a legacy. I'm going to be like a CEO and whatnot. We can't all be CEOs, by the way. That, that's, that only works for very few. But you, you, do you realize that to this day, the number one job in the world is what? It's a dollar a day farmer, subsistence farming. It's the most common job on planet Earth. They're not thinking about their 401k, they're thinking about feeding their family. They're not thinking about tailoring their job to suit their strengths finder, right? What's their hope? Well, I'm gonna just live a long, healthy life. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be fit and I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat right and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the most out of life because I'm, I'm shredded. Six pack will get you, that's, that's my hope. Well, that's great if you're able-bodied. That's great if you don't get cancer. 
right? What's the hope for the person whose body fails? Well, I'm going to have a family, and my kids are going to love me, and I'm going to, like, live on in their hearts, which is so creepy when people say that. You know, well, well, they live on in our hearts. Like, no, you don't. None of us has been Kenobi. A lot of nerdy references today, guys. That's great for people who have a family, but even those of us with a great family could tell you that it is not enough. That oftentimes it contributes to the present pain and you need something to hope in besides your family. Others, that is not available to you. Or you had one and lost it. It broke down. And, and with all of these, and we could go on, do you realize that if you live long enough, you'll lose all those hopes? You will reach a day in your life where those hopes are behind you and not in front of you. What then? What do you look to then? What hope is there that is not just for those inside of the veil, but for all people, regardless of your gender, regardless of your class, regardless of your nationality, when or where that you're born? Look with me at verse 26 here, or 28 rather. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. See how I think he's messing with them? He's pretending, oh, I'm, all right, holler. See you guys. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, where have we seen a table in the story of Jesus just before this? Oh yeah, last supper. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it. The exact same phrase from the last supper and began to give it to them. So, when Jesus at the Last Supper, those of you who know your Bibles, he, broke, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he said what? This is my body given for you. Is that just for the people at the table or is it for every reader? It's for every reader, isn't it? Now that he is risen, he doesn't need to say the words, right? He's taking the bread, he's breaking it and saying what? My resurrection is for you, not just the people at the table, but the reader as well. Look at this. Then their eyes were opened, and they're like, oh, we realize who this is. They recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Don't miss the message. The message is that Christ's resurrection is not just for him or them. Christ's resurrection is not just for the world. It is for you. It is for me. It is yours regardless of who you are, where you're from, what you're able to do or not able to do. Christ's resurrection is not only real, it's not only God's plan, but it is for you and me. Here is the hope. Because Christ rose, that means you will rise. Did you hear what Lilia read earlier? Paul says Christ is the first fruits from among the dead. That's an agricultural image. You have a, a wheat field growing or, a, or whatever they're growing, and there's one plant that bears fruit first. You know what that means? The rest of these are following. The rest of these are going to be just like that one, just like the first fruits. When he calls Christ the first fruits, what do we see? We see him resurrected. Now, this, is, this might be news to some of you. The Bible does not teach that you die and go to heaven as a soul without a body for all eternity. That is only for a time. Our ultimate hope is that our soul is reunited with a whole body, a body like Christ's, not that we are in heaven for all of eternity, but that we are on God's renewed earth 
If, if, if I'm freaking anybody out right now, you can come talk to me. That is what the Bible teaches, folks. <laughs> but that is our hope, that we will experience life the way it was supposed to be, the way, it, the way we were supposed to be without sin, without evil, without war, without racism, without destruction and environmental degradation and the rest of it. Christ's resurrection is real. It is God's plan. It is for you. We need to hope in Christ's resurrection. Look, it, it's not just for after we die. It, it's our hope right now. You know why? The, the power that God has to raise Jesus up from the dead, that's active in, in our lives when we receive the gospel. That, that's happening right now. I, 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 whatever problem you're dealing with, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say it's something short of you being dead. I've noticed that none of you are dead. God can deal with death. God can undo death. He can deal with whatever is going on in your life. There is always hope because Christ is risen. Yeah, don't forget that. And look, like the next person, I have gotten through a day with the hope of ice cream at the end of it, right? But ice cream does fail. There, there, are, there are certain problems that ice cream cannot bear the weight of. There are certain pains that, are, that ice cream doesn't make dealing with, or, or whatever, a vacation coming, or whatever it is. It's not a strong enough hope. You know what is? Christ's resurrection and your resurrection in union with Christ. Now, who is this available to? Is this available to the Holy Club? Do you have to prove yourself worthy somehow of the gospel, of, of God's, like, do you deserve eternal life? Actually, the fact is, none of us deserve it. So you may be saying, you know, I don't really live a lifestyle that Christians approve of. Neither do I. Neither, do any, neither does any Christian. None of us live up to God's standards. That is why God has given us this as a gift. We simply lay down our old life and take on the new. We commit to following Jesus. And, and, and look, we've all got reasons why we're not going to do that. But my question for you is what will you hope in instead? What is going to be that thing you are looking to in the future that is going to make dealing with present pain worth it? You need hope. Hope in Christ's resurrection. What this looks like in action is, is, is well represented by one of my sheroes that I, I discovered a couple of years ago woman named Julia Esquivel. Now, Julia Esquivel, you probably haven't heard of her. I do recommend picking up her poetry. She was a poet. But not only that, she was a seminary-trained theologian. She was real sharp. And, uh, and she was a, a human rights activist and counselor. You see, in the beginning in 1954, after the CIA arranged a little coup to overthrow Guatemala's leader, oops, uh, the government undertook a genocide of the indigenous Mayan people in Guatemala, sending out death squads. It was, it, 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 from, from then all the way through the 90s, it was a time of great terror. And everyone who stood up against the government could expect threats, kidnapping, torture, death. Julia Esquivel, in defiance of the government, published a newspaper and went and counseled people who had been victims of this brutality. She was trying to raise international awareness and do whatever she could. And she was kidnapped, eventually exiled, 
nearly killed several times, threatened, her family members threatened, and this, this little five-foot-nothing woman stood up to all of it. How? What gave her the ability to deal with that present pain? It was her hope in Christ's resurrection. One of her most famous poems, and one of my favorites, is called They Have Threatened Us With Resurrection, which is her contemptuous evaluation of the threats the Guatemalan government had leveled at us. Oh, you're gonna kill me, great, you're threatening me with resurrection. I'm gonna leave you with her words. It is the earthquake soon to come that will shake the world and put everything in its place. No, brother, it is not the noise in the streets which does not let us sleep. Join us in this vigil and you will know what it is to dream. Then you will know how marvelous it is to live threatened with resurrection, to dream awake, to keep watch asleep, to live while dying, and to know ourselves already resurrected. Let's pray. God, may we hope in your resurrection. May the despairing heart be filled up with looking to what Christ has done for us in his resurrection. May the, the one who fears death, the, may the one who fears life have the hope and courage to overcome because you have risen.